Good evening. Welcome to Unsafe Space. You're watching Dangerous Thoughts with me, Carter Laren. This is a series that uh, eh, we do roughly every Wednesday, dedicated to the exciting topic of thinking, thinking rationally. Uh, as humans, you know, we're fallible. We're motivated by emotion. Emotions are critical component of our psychology, but reason is the only cognitive means we have to check that the contents of our consciousness, our ideas, correspond to reality. Logic being the art of non-contradictory identification. So here on Dangerous Thoughts, we value the rational ideas that built modern civilization, individualist ethics as opposed to uh, collectivist ethics, uh, and and we and we value the application of those to to politics, which which is individual sovereignty and the politics of individual sovereignty. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm not here to save America, especially Washington D.C. But I am here to revive revive the ideas uh, that made America great in the first place. Uh, maybe we can usher in Enlightenment 2.0 together. Uh, maybe free of some of the other counter Enlightenment ideas that lingered. During the first Enlightenment, if you count Rousseau, for example, smack in the middle of the Enlightenment, probably the the villain of all Enlightenment. Uh, so, yeah, we can have a better version of the Enlightenment now. We just have to revive it. It's going to be fun, but only if you're a nerd like me. Uh, if you like, you know, if you're looking for like dancing cats or reaction drama. Uh, this isn't the show for you, but then again, I don't care. So today's agenda, um, we're going to talk about student loans, uh, the value of college. By the way, welcome everyone in chat. Someone's saying audio. Uh, Beverly just checked my auto, audio beforehand, so I imagine it's either a problem out of my control, like StreamYard, or... Uh, a problem on your end, but I don't know that there's much I can do if it's buffering. Anyway, welcome to everyone in chat. Uh, let me know if the audio continues to be a problem. Um, we're going to talk about, like I said, student loans and the value of college. Uh, before we do, don't don't forget to make sure you're subscribed. Also, please share this content. It really helps. Um, lots of the topics here are evergreen topics. So um, if you're looking for something in particular, uh, let us know. We probably have a video about it. We'll share it with you. Or if we don't have one, maybe we'll, maybe we'll make a video. <laughs> I always like topics. So speaking of, speaking of that, let's get into this. Uh, let's do some thinking. Mm. I've been asking you guys, I've been asking that the people in the unsafe space community about, uh, troublesome arguments. And I've been asking this question, you know, what arguments have you been maybe trying to refute, but having trouble refuting or some arguments you've been trying to make, but you're having trouble articulating. And I've been trying to get some, some direction from you guys about what, you know, what kind of stuff you want me to talk about. And one of you, I don't know if he wants to be named, so I won't name him, but someone in, in discord reached out and said, look, you know, can you talk about uh, finding signal in noise, which is an engineering term. Um, and I asked a little bit more about, you know, what do you mean? And, and he, I'm quoting, he said, I think it's easy to get driven into the weeds when discussing a lot of subjects or issues, uh, and missing the underlying principles. Certainly that is true. Uh, 
but he didn't give me any specific. <laughs> I wanted examples like, do you see this in a particular topic? I didn't get any examples. He left it to me. So, um, so I'm going to pick a topic and we're going to try and not get lost in the weeds. We're going to try and talk about how to maybe think about some, some principles, how to, how to think more clearly about a topic that can be complex that's in the news today. And that is the student loan crisis and the loan forgiveness. So we're going to talk about a few principles that might uh, help right at the outset, unrelated to the particular topic. Then we're going to look at the student loan crisis and try and, uh, you know, keep these principles in mind, apply them, and uh, and maybe notice, identify some common failures that we might see in how this topic is being discussed. Uh, maybe that'll help us think more clearly about it. So we're going to use the student loan issue as an example. Uh, I think earlier today, by the way, on Rebel Civics, Keith talked about the student loan issue. He's coming at this from a, a political kind of civics, you know, it, it, uh, perspective. Is it um, constitutional and that kind of stuff? We're going to put that aside. We're going to come at this from a um, really more of a cognition perspective. How do we think about this stuff, right? Um, all right. Let's talk about the principles of clear thinking. Three that I think apply to this particular topic, but we'll talk about the principles first. Because um, I was thinking about it's a it's a weird it's a weird thing to have someone say. How do you? How, I mean, it's not weird. It was just a challenging problem. How do you? Ha, how do you think about? How do you not get caught in the weeds? Um, so I was thinking about how do you not get caught in the weeds? Well, one 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 way to not get caught in the weeds. Is, the first principle here is to identify the context. Explicitly identify the context. Everything has a context. Um, and there's a couple kind of, I'll say sub subcategory sub principles to identifying context. One is just. That, that I find really helpful is just questioning the status quo, right? Um, and that starts with a recognition that whatever the subject is, or whatever the way things are now, they weren't always this way. That's true for basically anything that humans have done. It, it wasn't always this way, right? So you can say, well, how did things get this way? Why did things get this way? Could they be another way? What was the reasoning behind making them the way they are now? A lot of people just accept like, well, this is what we do. We have a, a, a system set up a certain way, and this is how you know entities interact. But why? Could it be another way? What's the reasoning behind this? Um, so let go of that status quo. I know I've talked about uh, the Chesterton's fence principle before. Um, Again, I actually don't know if it's apocryphal, which I think I've said before, but there's, you know, G.K. Chesterton had this idea basically that if you come across a fence in the road and you want to take it down or you want to tear that fence down, he'll say, well, you have to understand why it was put up in the first place in order to, uh, you know, before you take it down. You, you can't just take it down without understanding why it was put up in the first place. I don't think that's a bad principle. I also think there's <laughs> there's a counter principle. Uh, we can call it Laren's fence. I don't think that'll catch on. Uh, but th that is, if you want to keep the fence, you also have to understand why it was put up in the first place. Uh, and, and the idea here is that you don't get a say in anything without an understanding of why it's there. You don't, like, one way or another, you can't, you're not in the fence discussion if you don't understand why it was there in the first place. Um, so so that's uh, that's kind of this questioning the status quo idea, understanding, like, okay, you know what, and obviously the fence, if it's there, stays up by default, 
while you debate, but you're not allowed in the debate if you don't understand why it was up in the first place and what the, what the problem it was trying to solve. So, um, so that's one thing is just kind of questioning the status quo question. what you can see kind of obviously how this might apply to student loans, which we'll do in a moment. Um, the other, the other kind of related principle, um, in terms of identifying context is remembering that, um, principles are, our context. So, uh, taking efforts to identify principles that are related to the issue, principles that you hold, and looking for violations of those principles. Um, so if you see, if you're thinking about something and you identify something that, that maybe violates a principle uh, that you hold, either the principle is wrong or, which is unlikely if you're living consciously and adopting the principles explicitly, but possible, you may need to change the principle, or uh, you found a thread, you found something that doesn't make sense here, um, something that's a mistake. And that's a thread you can start pull. You can start to pull that thread and you can unravel. You can find that violation of the principle and say, oh, well, we like student loan kind of obvious example, like, oh, you know, does the government have the moral authority to do this? And then you can start pulling that thread apart if you want to. So that's one way to start. There's one kind of method of clarifying your thoughts on something. Make sure you are questioning the status quo, understanding why things are the way they are, and identifying principles attached to things. Uh, and not just jumping into a discussion and arguing about uh, what the right threshold for student loan forgiveness should be. Um, the, the second the second. Uh, principle here, I think, is is recognizing uh, statements that are value judgments. This is very, very commonly ignored. Um, value judgments are characterizations of actions or events or objects or whatever that that often carry some kind of moral significance. So you need to recognize when a value judgment is being made. So when you hear like X is valuable. That's an obvious one. Value. Hey, the word value is in it. It's value. X is valuable. X is good. X is preferable. It's better. It's or or the reverse. Uh, X is harmful or X is problematic. Those are value judgments. Recognizing that you're, you're dealing with a value judgment is critically important. And the reason it's critically important, and this is something I think a lot of people don't think about. Um, and I don't, I don't know how many people, if they thought about it, would disagree with what I'm about to say or would 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 agree with it? They just haven't thought this way. Um, but there is no intrinsic uh, value in a thing, in in, a, in an object. Um, there's no there's no intrinsic things don't have intrinsic value. Uh, a value statement requires a valuer. And a purpose, at the very least, right? Um, and let me use, I, I don't know why, I, I guess I do know why I picked this example. I'll pick the example because I have a periodic table of elements on the wall that some of you have seen <laughs> uh, in other videos uh, behind me. And let's just pick something really simple. Oxygen, it's an element in the periodic table. It's a thing in reality. Oxygen isn't intrinsically good. It's just oxygen. It's just a thing. It's an element. It's got eight electrons. It's got eight protons. It's got eight neutrons. And even for those of you with OCD, uh, 
It's just an element. That's all it is. It's a gas at room temperature. Uh, yay, that's nice. Now, if you're human and you want to breathe, you could say, well, then oxygen is good. But even then, there's caveats, right? It's only good if it's in gas form. Liquid oxygen is not helpful if you're gasping for breath. It's only good if it's not vibrating too quickly or slowly. That's the temperature of it. So oxygen that's too hot, not good. Too cold, probably not good. Um, it's only it's only helpful if it's it's only good for you if it's bonded with itself and nothing else, basically, right? It has to be O2, not carbon monoxide. That that's not good. It's throwing it with some carbon doesn't doesn't lead to what you want. Um and it's really actually only good to an extent. And when it's mixed with other inert gases, like our atmosphere, I think is roughly 20, 21% uh, oxygen, but the other, the rest of it is mostly nitrogen. Um, and if you, if you try and breathe pure oxygen for, for a period of time, I think, you know, roughly a day, it, you can get shock lung or whatever they call it. It's not good for you. It's toxic. So even oxygen isn't good. That's the thing that you might think, oh, that's obviously good. Now, we would often in colloquial speech say oxygen is good, right? Um, and and we would just say that as shorthand. We wouldn't have all the caveats. The caveats that I just listed sound kind of ridiculous, right? We, we don't go around listing all the caveats and who it's good for and in what circumstance, what the context is and blah, 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 right? And that's reasonable because otherwise we have to go around providing context for everything. At the very least, that would be annoying. It's probably debilitating. You probably couldn't even have conversations at all if you had to do that all the time. Um, but uh, when we say the shorthand oxygen is good or good for us or whatever, we normally understand the implicit context. We normally understand what form of oxygen we're talking about. We understand that you mean good for humans and for living, right? Not for painting a picture or cooking in a burrito like those that's not what it's good for it's good for humans and for breathing for living like we that context is kind of there we don't have to state it every time but there are other contexts in which uh the meaning could be completely different right so if you're a researcher studying obligate anaerobes which are little microorganisms that uh don't survive in that or for, for which regular atmosphere is toxic to them right you might say you might turn to your researcher buddy in the lab. You might be talking about this colony of these microbes and be like, oh, oxygen is bad. Now, your colleague assumes you mean it's bad to the colony of microorganisms that you're trying to cultivate for the purpose of growing the colony. Like, that's what it's bad for. You, your colleague wouldn't be like, oh, should we not take our next breath? So the context obviously matters there. Like, you're not saying oxygen is bad for humans. There's a context, right? I'm not suggesting that you go around being annoying, like an annoying little context accountant. Um, people will just want to shoot you, right? Uh, can you imagine if your spouse came, spouse came in the house, she opens the front door and she's like, hi, honey, I have good news. And you're like, good, actually, to whom and for what purpose and compared to what is the good news? Like that, she would just divorce you, right? No one wants to deal with that. So it's not necessary to run around being like auditing people's context constantly. But what is necessary is when you're solving a complex problem uh, 
when you're thinking deeply about something and you're trying to unravel a complex issue, you have to be aware of value judgment language that's happening. And if necessary, be able to explicitly stop and state the value judgment is being made to like to whom it's value to whom for what and even compared to what, right? So you might say, well, oxygen is even pure oxygen is good for humans compared to pure, like 100% oxygen in atmosphere is good for humans compared to 100% nitrogen atmosphere, <laughs> right? But it's not good for humans compared to 80-20 nitrogen oxygen or whatever. So you, you should be able to state the context. Um, and, and that's really important when you are solving complex things and you're thinking deeply about something. It's not something you want to go around doing every day. Ken says, actually, the guy doesn't laid. <laughs> doesn't get laid. Right. Right. That definitely happens. You can try that pickup line if you want. Next time you're the, the I don't know, you, if there's any youngins out on the dating scene, uh, next time a potential, you know, a, a potential spouse or a prospect uh, is in a conversation with you, just start, just start <laughs> context interrogating. See how that goes. So that's kind of another principle of clear thinking, right? There's this, you know, recognize these value judgments. So the first one was identify context. The next one is recognize these value judgments. Know when there's a value judgment being made. Be able to answer to whom it's valuable to whom and for what purpose as compared to what. Be able to answer those questions. And the third um, the third uh, principle I think that's helpful for clear thinking, I, I wasn't struggling with how to name this. Um I'll just, I'll let Jeff Goldblum introduce it here. Life will not be contained. Life breaks free, it expands to new territories, and it crashes through barriers painfully, maybe even dangerously, but life uh, finds a way. I called it Life Finds a Way. It's probably not the best name. You could also call it Don't Be a Stupid Marxist. Uh, I kind of maybe prefer the latter name, but I couldn't find a, a clip of Jeff Goldblum saying Don't Be a Stupid Marxist. Uh, anyway, uh, the, the principle here, the thing to keep in mind here, when you're trying to clear, you know, clearly think about uh, a complex issue, a political issue in particular is humans have volition. Uh, they're smart. I mean, obviously some of them don't seem like they're very smart, but you know, compared to most organisms, they're pretty smart. Uh, they adapt, they respond to things, they imagine things, they invent things, they strive, they persevere. Humans, humans adapt. Um, now, obviously, can you influence human behavior via force or uh, or even just propaganda or lying to them? Sure. Obviously, you can do that, but only to an extent. Humans aren't 100% malleable. They do have a nature that is uh, not really possible to just over, just change with policy or, you know, talking at them. Um. Think of it like you can't talk someone out of needing to eat to survive. Like it's like, or breathe to survive. We can use the oxygen analogy, right? Uh, it doesn't really matter how much you talk; they still need to breathe. Um, and that's true for for other aspects of human psychology. So human, there's aspects of human nature that just can't get changed. Um, and this this mistake that people make is is this idea that. Um, they can make a change to a system that humans are in uh, and 
and nothing else will change. Humans won't change their behavior as a result. So uh, like when one aspect of a system changes, the humans in that system will like, they will change their behavior to account for that, right? Sometimes they'll change it in a predictable way. And sometimes it will be unpredictable. They'll innovate or do something that, you know, is nonlinear that you're not expecting. And central planners, you know, the administrative state douchebags in the progressive movement, central planners forget this all the time. And communists, commies are fav famous for this, right? I mean, um, I think, or infamous is maybe a better word. Uh, now, just to be clear, Marx was not an environmental essentialist, right? There's there's nature-nurture argument, right? Um, and the environmental essentialists are the people who kind of say, well, you're born tabula rasa and your, your environmental upbringing is everything, right? And then, and then there would be people who would be genetic essentialists who would say, no, uh, everything about you is, is part, is your DNA. It's your genetics. Um, the truth is, is it's a mix. Um, Marx was not an environmental essentialist. So he didn't think that you were actually tabula rasa, but, but in his analysis of the French revolution, he did conclude uh, that in order to create his his utopia, um, man did need to be changed. We needed to make some changes to man, and he thought that you could do that through uh, basically policy and through through social means. Um, specifically, he was worried about man's ego and what he called egoism. But he wanted to fundamentally change some things about man. Now, the the communist societies built on his ideas proceeded to try and do just that they see they proceeded to try and change the nature of man because uh even marx knew hey the way they are now doesn't work communism won't work unless we change them right so um look i mean they they set about trying to change people and um uh, the results didn't work out very well on on the lighter side of this uh you got some jokes out of it right there was the soviet joke in the 70s or 80s or whenever that was, you know, they would say, well, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us, right? Like, oh, they're not, they're not actually going to work in the way that they did under capitalism when there's private property ownership, uh, when they're working in a job they didn't choose uh, for the benefit of the party. Okay, you can't change that about them, um, no matter how much indoctrination you do. And on the kind of more sobering end of the result is you have 100 million people dead. So, maybe more than 100 million people last century dead. There's also, so that's kind of kind of this famous error that communists make. We're going to change the nature of, of man. Um, but there's also some obvious examples of this in the West. And um, I kind of want to call it the magic perturbation fallacy. It's this idea that you take this complex system that involves humans and you tip the scales just in one part of the system and uh, that will only result in the desired outcome that you have, and it won't change the system dynamics anyway, right? Central, like central planners do this all the time. So like, oh, we want more tax money. Um, so let's increase taxes on business. Nothing will change except for their profit margin will fall and everything else will be the same and we'll get more tax revenue. It's like, well, you know, they might adapt. They might move jurisdictions. They might raise their prices. They might invest in, they might make capital expenditures to try and cut their the recurring expenses, they might say, hey, now's the time to hire, you know, now's the time to invest in the robots that replace the humans to do X, Y, and Z, because in the long term, that'll be cheaper. Um, people might not start businesses or, or investment in certain businesses might fall because the profit margins uh, aren't there. So things will change. In other words, you can't rely on the current dynamic forever. Um, it's always changing. And when you try and tip the scales, that does have an effect. You can't have a magic 
perturbation. You can't perturb the system over here and expect that there not to be ripple effects that change everything else and people to change their behavior. Um, you know, uh, I guess another example in the West is, uh, you know, we want, let's say we want uh, food to be cheaper, so we're going to subsidize corn production. Okay, uh, in the immediate future, uh, I guess some, I guess you could say a, a quote good outcome here, although we can argue that is like, okay, some some corn farmers that should have gone out of business don't go out of business. Probably would have been better if the land was used more productively or if they change, like they could change what they're farming or sell the land to someone who could use it more productively. But whatever, you get to sustain some corn farmers. Uh, in the midterm, you probably get more corn, corn farmers uh, and a misallocation of capital as a result, right? Because you got, now you get the subsidized industry. And, you know, but the, 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 the perturbations to the system don't end there, right? A few day, decades later, you've got, I don't know, Coca-Cola. Uh, Coca-Cola's market cap is uh, what? I'm looking at it here. $270 billion. Uh, and the U.S. has a population of barely mobile diabetics who are riding electric tricycles through Walmart, sucking down 32-ounce bottles of corn syrup uh, that's colored. <laughs> colored corn syrup. Okay. Uh, that's what you get. Uh, now, curiously, the the political aristocrats that that propose this kind of stuff that want to tinker with the free market system because they can fix it or or whatever, propose increases in taxes or or on business or whatever, um, they do understand that people change their behavior, and they actually try and use that when it comes to sin taxes, so called sin taxes. That they those are two words, not the word syntax. Sin taxes. Uh, that they that they propose. So like taxes on cigarettes, taxes on sugar, which is a new thing, right? Um, and because they understand that people respond to the taxes, that might lead you to ask if they expect sugar taxes to decrease sugar sales and consumption, shouldn't they expect taxes on businesses to decrease business activity? So uh we're off on a tangent here. Homework for you. Uh, consider the horrific possibility that they do actually expect that and that at least subconsciously they actually do want to destroy business. And that's, you know, they're driven by malevolence and malice and hatred of success and not anything good. So anyway, uh, those are the those are the kind of three, the three overarching principles we're going to talk about uh, and then and apply here. This uh, This idea that you need to Identify context, which had two components, questioning the status quo and, and looking for principles. This idea that you like value judgments require valuers and, uh, you know, for uh, to whom, for what, that kind of thing. And this idea that uh, I couldn't name very well, but we'll call don't be a stupid Marxist. So, so those are the principles. Let's, uh, let's apply these to the student loan crisis. Greg the baritone says, Carter, please, it's corn syrup of color. Yeah, sorry. Um, uh, you know, indigenous corn syrup. No, it's not indigenous corn syrup. Um, it's definitely oppressed corn syrup. Okay. Uh, let's just re. I have a. <laughs> I, the White House makes these nice little fact sheets for for us. I don't know if facts should be in quotes, but this is from last week. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's actually quite long for a stupid little fact sheet. 
but I'll read the title and some key points here. Um, Biden, President Biden announces student loan relief for borrowers who need it most. <sighs> All right, some stuff he says. Since 1980, the total cost of uh, both four-year public and four-year private college has nearly tripled, even after accounting for inflation. I wonder where that comes from, inflation. Uh, federal support has not kept up. <laughs> By the way, that to me, that's like saying, we kicked the ball down the street and we can't run that fast. So we need to figure out how to catch up to the ball so we can kick it again. Uh, Pell Grants once covered nearly 80% of the cost of four-year public college degree for students from working families, a term I hate, um, uh, but now only cover a third, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to get into the deals. There's like 43 million people with student loan. They have they have cute little graphs here about uh, the cost of attending college has skyrocketed. Who knows why? Um, all right, she's got three. He's got three points. We'll summarize here. I'm not even going to read the summaries. I'm going to summarize the summaries. Uh, today, President Biden is announcing a three-part plan to provide more breathing room to America's working families. By the way, when you see that phrase, "working fam families." Uh, after you puke, which is the right emotional response, uh, you can point out basically everyone except for those on the public dole, uh, which includes politicians, are working families. The fact that you sit at a desk doesn't mean you don't work. Um, it's just a classist. It's a leftover classist bullcrap. It's a Marxist phrase, basically. Um, anyway, tangent. All right. Provide more breathing room to America's working families as they continue to recover from the strains associated with the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, let's be honest. They're not recovering from the strains of the pandemic. They're recovering from the strains of the reaction to the pandemic, which was the government's. Um, okay. Here's the three things they're going to do. Number one, provide targeted debt relief to address the financial harms of the pandemic. Fulfilling the president's campaign commitment. The Department of Education will provide up to $20,000 in debt cancellation to Pell Grant recipients with loans held by the Department of Education and up to $10,000 in debt cancellation to non-Pell Grant recipients. Borrowers are eligible for this relief if their individual income is less than $125,000, a quarter million for married couples. No high-income individual or high-income household in the top 5% of incomes will benefit from this action. Oh, that's good. Just make sure that no rich people benefit because we hate them, right? We hate the rich people, the ones who actually probably paid off or could be paying off their loans. We hate them and the ones who are being productive. Yeah. Okay. Um, but the ones who are volunteering for the Biden campaign and as a result will never pay off their loans. They need their loans for you. Okay. Uh, I'm sure that's unrelated. Uh Two, make the student loan system more manageable for current and future borrowers by, and there's a few things that they do to this. There are two things they do. One, cutting monthly payments in half for undergraduate loans. Now, this is fascinating, by the way. Um, the Department of Education is proposing a new income-driven repayment plan that protects more low-income borrowers from making any payments and caps monthly payments for undergraduate loans at 5% of the borrower's discretionary Income. Now, you might be thinking, and I've seen conservatives argue against this and say five, they're capping it at 5% of their income. No, 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 they're not capping it at 5% of their income. 
it's 5% of the discretionary income, which means after you've paid for your housing, after you've eaten and clothed yourself, 5% of the leftover, 5% of your Netflix budget, effectively, I mean, the budget in which Netflix falls, 5% of that income is the cap. Because why should you have to be burdened at all by paying back loans? Um, so <laughs> I just, I mean, it's quite a lot of people with basically no discretionary income at this point. So, I mean, that cap could be nothing. Uh, all right. Second point to the make it more manageable, fixing the broken public service, public service loan forgiveness program. Uh, by proposing rule that borrowers who have worked at a nonprofit in the military or in federal, state, tribal, or local government receive appropriate credit towards loan forgiveness. All right. So basically, if you're part of the, the apparatus, if you're part of the the apparatus of the progressive utopia slash dystopia of the administrative state, if you're one of them, you get some loan forgiveness. <sighs> Third point, protect future students and taxpayers by reducing the cost of college and holding schools accountable when they hack up prices, blah, blah, blah. This is just stuff that he wants to do. We're going to skip the rest of that one. All right, so lots of discussion about this. Uh, lots of people kind of in the weeds. This is, this is why I'm talking about this one. It's an in the weeds one. Uh, people arguing about, is the ceiling correct? Like the cap? Like, I don't know. Is, is, is it... What if a couple making $250,000 or $249,000, they get some forgiveness? That seems bad. It should be lower, blah, 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 blah. And people are arguing about that, right? 5% um, of disposable income. I don't see enough people complaining about that because a lot of people, even people I thought were smart, didn't seem to notice that it's 5% of discretionary income, not 5% of total income. Um, but people are arguing about that kind of crap. Um and then people arguing, I think, a little bit more legitimately, hey, won't other people have to pay for this? Uh, you know, I paid my loans or he didn't go to college or whatever. So that's kind of the weeds going on. Um, <laughs> I can't. I, You know what? <laughs> I have to stop and take the super chat for a moment because it's funny. Um, let, me, let me pull it up. Okay. Francis. Hi, Francis. Thank you, first of all, for the super chat. Uh, Francis says the Canadian socialized healthcare system is currently pushing and advocating for their citizens to be euthanized. What's your stance on government-founded euthanizations? <laughs> is there, I'm sorry. Is there anyone who would be like, oh, I think it's great. Governments should be encouraging people to murder themselves. Um, my stance on government-founded euthanizations is the exact same thing as my stance on government-founded healthcare, which is it's unfounded. Uh, it's none of their business. They shouldn't be in the business of providing health. They shouldn't be in the business of telling you when life is so crappy that you should just end it all. It should be none of their business. I think that's uh, pretty, clear, pretty clear. But maybe someone's got a stance of like, yeah, yeah, government should be encouraging euthanasia. Um, there are certainly some people that I would like to see uh, decide to euthanize themselves, but that's a topic for another day. Okay. Most of them are associated with the government, though, so probably that won't happen. Um, all right, so let's get back. The current debate, thank you for the question, by the way. Uh, and he says, Francis, by the way, says, I assume it's a he. I'm sorry if I'm misgendering you, Francis, but 
it's a it's a gender neutral name which didn't used to mean anything but now apparently it's a thing uh people are happy about this yeah i imagine some people are are quite happy because it saves them money so if you're paying for grandpa's uh, expensive, uh, life-saving, life support, you know, healthcare, and he could stay on this expensive thing for 10 or 20 years. And, um, yeah, that's, that's the, that's what happens when you socialize the cost. I mean, people predicted this since time immemorial. Like everyone knows this, like, yeah, if you socialize the cost. Uh, people are going to be like, Hey, what about those expensive people? Let's <laughs> good idea to get rid of them. Uh, all right. So this current debate on on the student loan forgiveness, I, I, let's just look at what the, I've seen two major arguments here. And I think the right, the, the right, when I say the right, I mean kind of Republican conservative part, you know, parties. Uh, I think they're pointing out the myopic position of Democrats and, and partly correct. I mean, there's some correct things to their, they fail. We're going to talk about how they fail. Um, and why their failure is absolutely inevitable because of their own unprincipled stances. But um, they are correctly pointing out some of the uh, the problems with this to Democrats. Uh, but the two main arguments I've seen, one is is merely an economic argument, right? And this is the argument that, hey, uh, you know, forgiving student loans costs something, Uh and this is, by the way, this is a this is an argument that the 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 Republicans are bringing in context correctly. They're like, "Hey, there's context here. The other half of the balance sheet is being ignored. We can't just cherry pick. We can't just say here's the benefit and ignore the cost, right?" And you see this all the time. Um, you see this all the time with government, right? You see, let's look at the benefits of this, and for student loans, you see, well, 43 million people could potentially be helped and costs. We don't talk about costs at the end. Um, costs don't exist. So, hey, if that's the way you do bookkeeping, you're always going to be profitable, right? Um, you also see it where sometimes where they only look at the cost uh, and they ignore all the benefits. We just talked about that recently with with fossil fuels. Oh my God, look at all the costs of fossil fuels, blah, 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 blah right? Okay, but we need to have a conversation about the benefits, right? Um, cause they're tremendous and they vastly, vastly outweigh the costs. Um, and actually sometimes you see this, this lopsided stuff. I think you sometimes see this lopsided stuff from the right. Um, the one that came to mind when I first was thinking about this was, um, the right has recently argued that the government should force Twitter to not censor. Right. And they're only looking at, they're only looking at the benefit here. Right. The benefit is, well, it helps us conservatives now. We can stay on and, you know, misgender people or whatever the, the horrible sins that, that, that they're committing on Twitter, uh, you know, stating some science. Um, and they say, look, it's, it's a benefit, so we should do it. But they're ignoring the costs, and the costs are real. The cost there is you've just moved a little closer to fascism. You get that, right? Your fascism your, is the the ostensible private control of companies or private ownership of companies, but the government really controls what they do. You're moving whoop, a little bit closer. This is what China does, right? Uh, ByteDance, who owns TikTok, is a company, but they don't, they don't choose what to censor. I mean, they kind of do because they know if they choose wrong, they'll get shot or whatever, so, or they'll lose their company. So they're, it's, they're coercively choose what to censor, right? Um, because 
hey, there's a government breathing down their necks who's got control of their business. Um, so that that's a big cost uh, that you'd think conservatives would be like, well, do we really want a a government that is typically bloated and like on a like express train to communism, like a massively leftist government? They're the ones we want deciding what companies should censor. Like, ah, that's, maybe that's a bad idea. They don't think about that. So you see it from the right as well. So anyway, so there's this one half of the balance sheet ignoring the other. Um, and there's there's with respect to the student loans, there's a real economic cost, right? Uh, if a loan is forgiven, someone has to pay for that, right? Uh, the government, you know, they can they can print money, they can borrow money, they can tax to get money. In this case, it's likely uh, basically printing that will happen, although maybe they'll have to borrow or tax to fund other things because or whatever. Um, all these things lead to inflation of the money supply. Inflation hurts everyone. Uh, it's particularly painful to the poorest people, but that's not a moral argument. It just happens to be the case. Um, don't worry, though, by the way, because if you hurt the poor, uh, you can move them to the government dole, and then everyone wins. We can move closer to socialism because more people are dependent on the government. Anyway, um, so someone does have to pay for this, and that's that's the thing that the the Republicans are pointing out. That's the correct thing to point out. There's also a fairness argument they're making, kind of a uh, a moral argument, and and that's and that's an extension of the someone has to pay for it, which is well, some of that, some of the people who are paying for it because we're all paying for it, right? Some of that, some of us maybe chose not to go to college or went to a cheaper college or skimped and saved to pay off loans. Uh, and they're going to end up paying for other people. Uh, this rewards people who made poor uh, buying decisions or, you know, you know, decisions to borrow uh, at the expense of people who made better decisions. Like, you know, as an example, uh, when I, I mean, this is a long time ago, so I just, I'm well past probably the windows for a lot of, you know, people my age don't usually have student loans anymore, but, uh, you know, I had an opportunity to go to a much better undergraduate school. I got a scholarship even to the, to this school, uh, which was Carnegie Mellon. I wanted to go to Carnegie Mellon, but it was really expensive. I would have had to take out a lot of loans and I ended up going to a much cheaper school, um, because they gave me a full ride. So that was, it was free. Um, and like, it was not as good of a school, uh, but I went because it was free. Uh, so I made an economic decision about, okay, well, I'm not going to go to Carnegie Mellon, which was horribly expensive. I don't know what it is now, but it was horribly expensive in the 90s when I <laughs> would have gone. Uh, at least to me, it was horribly expensive. And I didn't want to take out the loans, and I didn't want to be saddled with the debt. So I made an economic decision. Uh, now, today, if I was faced with the same thing and looking at the rhetoric and what's going on, I would kind of think, well... Maybe I should just take out the loans because probably I'm going to, worst case, I pay 5% of my disposable income. It's forgiven after that. Yeah. No big deal. Anyway, um, so that's that's a real issue. Now, there is a problem here with the Republican position. There is a way in which they are not following the clear thinking principle of context. Because most of what we just talked about is them bringing in context that's been ignored which is good, but they're not bringing in all the context. They're only bringing in the context in a very narrow, pragmatic way, and this will bite them in the ass. And what they're not bringing in is that principles 
are part of the context. They think they're bringing in principles, right? This unfairness, but unfairness isn't really a principle. Uh, and conservatives, Republicans are traditionally really unprincipled, and we're going to see how that has uh, reared its ugly head here. So they're not, they're failing at the, at bringing in principles. And if they did bring in the principles that we're going to talk about, they would see some red flags. Uh, they would probably have, to, it would spawn them to change their principles, right? Or position. Uh, so they can't do that. They have to ignore this. Uh, and and the main principle I'm talking about here is the, the principle of altruism. And as applied to politics, it's the principle of the redistribution of wealth. Republicans can't argue against redistribution of the wealth. The Democrats have, ironically, the Trump, the Trump card, uh, not the Donald Trump card, but the Trump card. The Democrats have the Trump card when it comes to context, uh, when it comes to principles here. Because the governments have, the, the governments, the Republicans have accepted the redistribution of wealth principle. They accepted it. It's part of who they are. They they think, well, you should do a little bit of it, but not all of it. Well, you've accepted the principle. So as a result, the Democrats can actually use principles, principles that Republicans accept in their own defense. Let's see. There's a great example of this. Let's watch as Susan Rice, the de uh, deputy director of national for the National Economic Council. She did a press conference about this. She, she was one attended a press conference, one of the speakers at a press conference about student loans. And you'll hear a reporter asking her about criticism. I want you to listen to her response. Let's see, here it is. Your, your general response to this overwhelming chorus of critics, Republicans right now, who say this is unfair that there are people who decided to not go to college because they couldn't pay for it. There are people who decided to join the armed forces in lieu of going to college because they couldn't pay for it. And this leaves them behind. Is there inaccuracy in any of that? Yes, there is inaccuracy, but there's also a double standard. And this is a debate we are happy to have. First of all, Republicans didn't complain when certain small businesses during the pandemic got extraordinary uh, financial relief um, and, and without having to pay back those loans. But when some businesses needed it and other businesses didn't need it. This is the same principle. We have a country where we all benefit, where the middle and working class are doing well. This relief will be targeted to those who need it most. As I said, 90% of those who will benefit earn less than $75,000 a year. So this is not a giveaway to rich people. This is not uh, any of the things that uh, Republican critics have charged. Yes, those who have paid their loans back um, deserve uh, to, to be credited. That's fantastic. That's to their, uh, to their credit. But that doesn't mean that those who are, for whatever reason, unable to pay back their loans, like, you know, one third of people have debt and no college degree. Um, that doesn't mean that because the, some were able to do so, nobody should help those who weren't. By that logic, we wouldn't help anybody in this country. All right, so look, obviously there was a little bit of word salad and, and gobbledygook in there, but she, she, she makes this point. I'm, she says, I'd be happy to argue with him about this. Yep, she would be happy to. And then she makes the point. Well, if that were 
It, by that logic, we wouldn't help anyone. Now, she's right. If by we, she means the government, and by help, she means give free shit to. Uh, <laughs> uh, by that logic, you wouldn't help anyone. Uh, you wouldn't. The government wouldn't give free shit to anyone. And actually, some of us say, yes, that's the right logic. Those are the right principles. And the government shouldn't give free shit to anyone. Full stop. But Republicans don't say that. They, so they can't win this argument. They lost this argument a long time ago when they accepted a little bit of socialism. Well, in extreme cases, the government should give free shit to people and blah, blah. Well, charities don't do everything they should. Blah, blah, blah. Like, okay, fine. You're going to accept that principle. Fast forward to 2022, they're going to use it against you. You've accepted the principle that the door's wide open. Now, the floodgates are open. They've been open for a while. And, you know, the only thing the conservatives have to push back on is like, well, that's too much. That's too much. That's too much. The principle argument has been lost. That's why conservatives, uh, I think, uh, get credit for being the – they're the guards in – remember the Monty Python uh, Holy Grail skit where there's the two guards that are that are in the, the tower guarding the prince and they're absolute morons? Uh, that That's the conservatives. They're just morons and – you know, when the Democrats want to walk in, stab them and steal the prince, that's they do. OK, uh, so this issue, this this relates back to that. The the first principle, the identifying context. Right. Um, there's a violation of a principle here. This woman, right. Uh, Susan Rice she calls it out. Right. Any Republican listening, if they're honest, intellectually honest, they should be thinking to themselves after that press conference. Oh, she's right. Do I need to change my position on student loans or do I need to change the principle? I've accepted this principle. Now, of course, they're not going to do that because they're politicians. But um, clear thinking would require them to reevaluate that principle, the principle that it's the government's job to hand out money to, quote, help people. Uh and they would reconsider this principle of redistribution of wealth as something that's that's okay if it's a little bit. A little bit's not a <laughs> objective measure, right? Uh, and they would accept that principle or they would reject, reject that principle. And it would likely have pretty huge consequences for them uh, in, in their policy decisions and, and everything else. But Republicans are too scared to say, yeah, let's stop redistributing wealth generally. The government has no moral right to do it because they want to do that. So... They just want to do it in other circumstances. So, all right. There's also, by the way, a counter-economic, counter-economic, I wish there was a counter-economic thing happening here, but there is not, to my knowledge. Uh, there's a counter-argument to this real economic cost uh, that we just talked through, like someone has to pay for these loans, right? Um of course, the, the Democrats will have administrative state experts. Uh, I wish we had a word for administrative state experts. Asperts. Maybe that's not a good one. I don't know. Anyway, they have their experts who will argue it doesn't cost anything because hand wave, hand wave, economic activity, hand wave, call Paul, Paul Krugman, right? Uh, I mean, obviously, these are the same people who are consistently wrong about every economic event, but you can find them. They have government jobs and at think tanks, and they write articles in 
the New York Times. And so I'm sure they can find people that have PhDs and Nobel Prizes in economics to, to go, magic, there's no cost, right? Okay, fine. Um, but there actually is a real, more pragmatic argument uh, against the economic cost here. And I want to thank um, a guy on Twitter who uh, I communicate once in a while. His name is his on Twitter is Selfish Citizen. I don't know who he is in real life. Um, but he pointed this out to me, and I'm, I'm using I, I checked some of the stuff he sent, but he sent me down this path. Uh, the value of the student loan portfolio uh, is likely grossly overstated uh, right now on the books. Uh, According to the, the Biden's last budget, I think it's a 30%, roughly a 30% default rate on student loans. Um, there's almost $200 billion in losses recorded on the direct loan program, uh, according to the Government Accounting Office. And there's this income-based repayment rules thing. Now, remember I talked about uh, discretionary income? In 2009, uh, this discretionary income rule came along. And basically it was, you only have to pay up to a max of 15% of your discretionary, discretionary income. And if you do that for 20 years, your loan is forgiven. Obama then lowered it to 10% and Biden just lowered it to 5%. So if you take a look at this, so that 2009 is what, like 13 years ago, roughly, right? So um, we're, we're coming up in the next 10 years we're going to have a lot of people who have uh, paid mostly 10% and now 5% max of their discretionary income, which is a pittance, right? Uh, they're going to be able to turn around starting in, what, 2029 and say, well, I've been doing this for 20 years. The rest of my loan is forgiven and a large percentage of the loan will evaporate. So the value of this loan portfolio is actually kind of crappy. It's a, it's in, in business terms, we would say it's underwater. Um and you want to, it's kind of a toxic asset. You want to get rid of it um, as a creditor. So what are the options that the federal government would have to get rid of this thing? Well, they could sell it to the private market at a discount. Um, they could say, you know, maybe it's 50 cents on the dollar. I don't know, 20 cents on the dollar. I don't know what the numbers are. Maybe it's high. Maybe it's 70 cents on the dollar, but it's probably lower than that. So they could sell it at a discount, get some money off the table, leave it to the private companies. They would deal with it now. Uh, that's, that's one path, probably not politically, uh, probably doesn't look good politically to do that. They could just write down the value. They could say, you know what? Uh, wow. This student loan program sucks. We gave about a bunch of loans. Uh, then we have these rules. They're not going to get paid back in full. Look, the value of these student loans is much less than we thought. We're going to write down the value right now. We're going to discount them right now and just say, this is the value of the portfolio. It's a lot less than we stated previously. Now, both of these things, if they're done honestly, exposes the failure of the government student loan program, right? If they got up and said, well, we got out, sorry, uh, we effed up. We have to write down, we have to write down the value of the loans or we got to sell it for pennies on the dollar to someone because this was a bad idea, right? So they don't, they don't want to expose the failure of their program. So instead they can get adulations and, and maybe some votes by appearing to be magnanimous. And hey, you know what? Because we care, we're going to forgive student debt. The poor working class people have such trouble right now. We're going to forgive it. Now, 
that allows you to write down the value of the student debt substantially, but not take any blame for having a program that's completely underwater financially and was moronic to begin with. You're just doing it because the darn economy is so hard on the working class. It's probably because of capitalism, actually. If only there were more government, right? So they're taking, uh, they're taking some broken eggs and they're making a political omelet out of these broken eggs. That's what's happening here. Now, uh, of course, there is a principle involved here, which is honesty. And so, so it makes this a bad idea anyway on principle. So, uh, but that shouldn't be surprising that they're doing something that's a bad idea on principle. Uh, but of course, lying to save, what's the consequences? Lying to save a progressive ideology or a program based on progressive ideology. Uh, that has some pretty serious consequences. It shields people from the fact that progressive ideology fails. They're less likely to reject it in the future, which means we'll have more disastrous programs in the future. So they're hiding it. Uh, they're just going to make the problem worse. So anyway, uh, that's that's all that kind of first major argument I've seen, which is this, this argument of it costs something. There's two sides to this balance sheet, and there's there's this you know, people who, people who didn't do this are going to have to pay and there's these economic costs. Okay. Um, the second major argument I've seen is, uh, a moral hazard argument. Um, a moral hazard is in, in economics, it's when people have an economic incentive to ex increase their, their exposure to risk because they don't suffer the full consequences of that risk. Right? So, um, if, for example, if you, if I said, uh, hey, you can invest up to $100,000 of your own money into whatever stock you want uh, and any weird business venture you want. Um, and I will guarantee that if it fails, I'll just give you your $100,000 back or I'll give you $90,000 of it back, whatever. Uh, I'm just going to be, I'm going to be daddy and take care of it if you fail. Well, you're more likely to make much riskier investments, right? Because you're like, well, yeah, I mean, Worst case, I get my money back. <laughs> right? Like, well, I'm going to swing for the fences. I'm going to invest in that crazy guy with, uh, I don't know, gendered Bitcoin. I don't know what, it, like some stupid, like, okay, great. I'm going to go do that. Okay, fine. Um, whereas you might be more conservative with your money if it was like, well, if you lose it, you lost it. It's your money, right? Um, and the moral hazard argument against, this is a good argument. Um, and and Marxists, by the way, almost never ever see this. And by Marxists, I also uh, include Democrats. They also never ever see moral hazard arguments. Um, and and obviously, this is a failure to apply the "don't be a stupid Marxist" principle. Um, but let, let's just take a look at how the free market works here. In the free market. If there's something, if there's a product or service that is so expensive that you need to take out a loan to buy it, then it's only really rational for you to buy it. You're only going to buy it for two, one of two reasons. Either you just want it. It's not a financial decision. It's a luxury, you know, art, a big house, um, or maybe some non-monetary benefit that you get out of it, like psycho psychological benefit or medical or whatever, like. So there's a non-monetary reason to make your life better in some way that's not monetary. That's one reason you might do it. Uh, or you believe it's going to make your life better. <laughs> like buying a boat. You think it's going to make your life better. It's not. Uh, or the other reason is it's a financial reason. You believe that the value you're going to extract from this loan 
you buy, you know, you take it a loan to buy something, you think the value you're going to extract from the, that activity is going to, you're going to more than compensate for the cost of the loan plus interest and everything, right? So that's another reason to take out a loan. Um, so for houses, usually fall into the first category, uh, unless you're counting on the housing market to go up, in which case you might try to make an economic decision out of it. Um, but economic decisions are like, you know, you're starting a business or, or whatever, and you're like, well, we need, you know, I'm putting this money into the business because I expect to get that plus a lot more back, right? If you apply this to college, um, well, if your college degree doesn't enable you to pay back the loan that you took out to buy the college degree, guess what? It's not economically worth buying the college degree. Right? I'm looking at you, creative writing majors. Uh, except Alex. I don't know. She's an English major. I don't know if she's creative writing. Anyway. Um, so what might happen in a free market if you had, say, 43 million students underwater and couldn't pay their debt, their student loan debt? Assuming the free market would ever even get to that point, which I don't think would happen. Um, well... The people who took out loans irrationally, right, who expected it to pay off, but it didn't, um, they're going to suffer for it financially. Now, other people see that over and right? siblings, kids, whatever, other, other people see that, and friends, right, younger friends, whatever. Uh, other people see that, and they start questioning the economic value of college loans, uh, now, once people start questioning the economic value of college loans, demand for the loans decrease, decreases, right? You get fewer, less demand, fewer loans. Uh, probably college attendance might decrease, especially the expensive ones. So maybe college revenue drops a little bit. Now, what happens as a result of that? Well, it's not clear because the free market, you know, you can't necessarily predict, but maybe... Maybe colleges attempt to correct this through a combination of lowering their costs, increasing value, right? So, for example, they could fire all the diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion coordinators in their whole office and hire a computer science professor, right? Uh, so the journalists could actually learn to code. Uh, they could, you know, maybe they would come up with creative solutions, right, where, well, if you get a certain degree and you promise to go work for this place, Afterwards, uh, you know, we'll pay back the loan if you're working for us, right? If you're not, you you know, you get saddled with the loan, but whatever. Like, more creative solutions would arise, maybe. Maybe, maybe it turns out that a traditional four-year college isn't actually worth it for a large percentage of people. So, uh, other businesses focused on uh, filling that void uh, and training them to be productive, other businesses arise. So you might have trade schools or educational online resources, Khan Academy for higher education or whatever. Maybe you'd have more entrepreneurship. Maybe stuff we can't even think of. There'll be some, maybe there'd be some innovation here because there would be a bunch of people who are like, well, I don't want to go to college, but I do want to better myself in a way that's economically advantageous. Okay. But instead of that, uh, our administrators, uh, 
decided the you know the the progressive bloated bureaucratic administrators they decided that college was too unaffordable but also super critical and the government needed to step in to fix the problem uh so they started issuing grants and loans etc and what do you get out of that well you get a moral hazard how do you get a moral hazard well the person paying for the service is not the person benefiting from the service right um you can say well they're taking out loans and whatever but uh your people are generally not great at you've, you've disconnected it's one level of indirection away and you're also doing grants by the way they do some grants um so you end up with these perverse incentives there's decreased price sensitivity from students because you can go to a more expensive school than you otherwise would which i talked about on my choices in college um you have a lack of connection as a result between the value of the product and the cost of the product. So you might end up with a degree that's kind of worthless. Um, you have perverse incentive for universities, right? Because they're going to charge more because you're being subsidized because they can, you end up with bloat the university of Texas at Austin, I think had what 94 employees tasked with pursuing diversity was the last, uh, that article years ago we looked at. Um, they care less about the economic value of education to them, to the colleges. They don't care whether you're getting an economic value out of it because the customer is really kind of the U.S. government at this point. So the problem gets worse. Things get more expensive, less economically valuable. The degrees become less economically valuable. Um, and by the way, I think there's a bunch of things making college degrees less economically valuable, not just that. Uh, and these colleges are getting protected from the failure that they that they would in a free market be experiencing and protection from failure prevents the reallocation of capital right so um any cool new free market solutions that might arise maybe based on the internet or whatever like who knows uh they get suppressed because capital is being allocated uh, inefficiently the government steps in to fix it makes it worse, lather, rinse, repeat. There you go. The goal with education is obviously the same as the goal is healthcare. They want universal free education in the same way that they want universal free healthcare. Uh, but poor education based on an old model that has proven to have lost touch with the free market, right? So that's what they want. So, so the three principles we talked about were identifying the context, and there was two components of that, questioning the status quo and identifying related principles and, and violations of those. The second one was recognizing value judgments. And the third one was the, you know, life finds a way slash don't be a stupid Marxist. Now we saw how identifying, re you know, related principles and violations of those and being a stupid Marxist applies. I want to talk about um, how the, well, so those two, just to recap, right? The identifying principles, that was the Republicans losing the principle argument. All right. They, they started, they started providing some context and then stopped because uh, they can't go all the way. Um, and don't be a stupid Marxist. We just talked about the moral, moral hazards in education. Create future problems, right? Because people adapt. Things things change. But let's apply, let's apply the questioning the status quo stuff and the recognizing value judgment stuff to this problem. Uh, and th this is pretty straightforward and easy. Questioning status quo stuff. Well, this just means you don't ask yourself simply, why do we have a student loan crisis? I mean, it's fine to find, to identify the proximate causes of a student loan. That's, you know, you want to do that. That's good. It might help you understand the issue or whatever. But more important than why do we have a student loan crisis is why do we have a student loan program? 
right? And and maybe asking like, well, what are the underlying assumptions to the student loan program? And there's a bunch you can identify right away. One assumption of the student loan program is that college degrees will always be worth the cost. That's just a built-in assumption. Um, and there's not a preference for a degree from where or in what. That's not part of the college student loan program. Right? They don't they don't look. Uh, another assumption is that hey, people, the credit is good with these people. They're going to pay it back. Um, maybe another assumption is uh, the government will hold them accountable to paying it back. Now, of course, if that were true, if people were, if the college degrees were worth the cost, and people were going to pay them back, um, wouldn't a bank make the loan? Right. I mean, if the economics worked out, the free market would make the loan. So why do you need the government? You only need the government because the economics don't work out. Now, one argument you might hear is, well, banks won't do it because of racism. Everything's racism, right? Banks won't do it because of racism. Let's assume there's a bunch of racist banks who won't make solid, solid loans because racism. Not everyone is racist. Someone will make the loan. And when they do, they will create a market and put pressures on other banks because they'll be making money on loans. Like, that's how the free market works. It doesn't last forever. Irrational behavior doesn't last forever like that. So, and the government isn't even evaluating potential of these. They're not even bothering to evaluate the potential of these loans. So the government stepping in because the free market wouldn't work, that can't be the reason the government stepped in. because. Like I said, if the loans were worth it, the free market would do it, which means the loans aren't worth it. So the government is stepping in in a case where the loans aren't worth it. Why? Well, uh, probably just goodies for votes, honestly. Um, the government has been, <laughs> I mean, there's been rising costs of education for some time. This is This is not new. Uh, the government's been quote helping for a long time. Uh, it's like, have you ever had a, you ever had like a five-year-old try and help you clean? Like there's an age at which I remember, I think I forget how old my daughter was, but I remember there was an age at which I was like, okay, she's like neutrally helpful <laughs> at this. She's graduated to being like from being unhel unhelpful, helpful to neutrally helpful. And then obviously when she got older, she became actually helpful. But like really young kids, it's like, uh, okay, you let them help because you're wanting to, them to learn, but often their help is not helpful, right? Um, so the government stepped in to help, right? Um, and they've been, in, like I said, they've been involved in college loans and, and colleges for a long time. The GI Bill in 1944 is one of the most famous cases, right? This is when uh, Roosevelt uh, wanted uh, veterans to be able to get uh, college, college, uh, college money was one part of it. There's other aspects to it, but college money was one of the things, um, you know, and conservatives at the time, and maybe some conservatives even now will say, but the government owes them their veterans. They sacrificed blah, 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 blah. And they were drafted, by the way, which is an even better argument. They didn't even want to go in World War II, right? Uh, that's true. If that's true, if the government actually owes them because they were drafted, I do think being drafted is uh, immoral and they shouldn't have been drafted. So 
are they owed compensation? I mean, I guess it's the question is like from whom? I mean, and the answer is the people who drafted them, not the population generally. But okay, if they're owed compensation for this, just pay them. At least just paying them is just generally inflationary, right? Like you're not, you're you're kind of at a low level mucking with the efficiency of the entire system. Okay, just pay them. Just pay them. But you start doing things like, well, we're going to pay for college or this, like now you're screwing up markets, right? In a much greater way. Um, and also that gave power to accrediting uh, agencies because they had to be accredited. And so uh, the private accrediting agencies kind of had power yellow cabals of like, well, you're not accredited. So because uh, you can't get the, the money unless you go to an accredited school. So, you know, they set up this kind of, hey, what, what do you know? They set up some bureaucracy. Uh, who'd have thought? Now, you might say, but college is expensive and GIs couldn't afford it. To which I would say, so what? And then you might say, well, but college is the ticket to economic prosperity. Class mobility requires college. And that's where I would say, does it though? Maybe let's question that. GIs couldn't afford to buy factories either, by the way, most of them. But if a GI approached investors with a solid plan for a business, he might have gotten a loan to build the factory. Lenders do want to make money. That's the entire leftist criticism of lenders, right? You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't be like, lenders are rapacious and greedy and only interested in making a buck. But also, they won't lend money when it's a good, you know, good deal. Of course, they'll lend money when it's a good deal, but only when it's a good deal, right? So if people have trouble getting a loan for college on the free market, then maybe college actually isn't a good deal financially. And when when you're saying like, well, they they class mobility requires college, ticket college is economic prosperity. Well, then why isn't it a good deal? Why isn't a loan a good deal? If those things are true, a loan would be a good deal, which brings us to the second principle, uh, which we're going to apply. It brings us to a question. How valuable is college? So now we're going to talk about the second principle, which is recognizing value judgments. Okay. Is college valuable? Well, that's like asking, is oxygen valuable? In what form? Define college. Is it is are you, when you say college? Do you mean a PhD in postmodern reinterpretation of Aboriginal rain dances that cost one hundred and fifty grand, or do you mean a degree in computer science from a state school that cost forty grand? So, what form are we talking about? Oxygen, one oxygen molecule bonded to carbon, which is carbon monoxide, or two oxygen molecules mixed in with an eighty percent nitrogen mixture? Oh. What's the form of college that you're talking about? What college? Which college? What kind of degrees? At what cost? Valuable to whom? That's the second question. To whom? To whom is it valuable? To someone with an IQ of 85? They might have trouble getting through college. To someone with an IQ of 185? They might be bored and can learn a lot of stuff on their own. Is it valuable to someone who 
prefers the outdoors and working with his hands and already has a construction job that he loves and he's doing well? I don't know. Is it valuable to someone who's already running their own coffee shop? Every individual is different. They have different circumstances, goals, preferences, abilities, responsibilities. That's life. They're all different. You can't group them all into one thing and say, well, they're, you know, it's valuable to everyone. Nope. And then, then the question is valuable for what reason? Just for the sake of learning because they're curious? Maybe. Because they want to be a doctor and they need accreditation? Okay. They want to make money and land a job? Depends on the degree, probably. They want to go because they want to network. I mean, a lot of people, Stanford's known, I mean, Stanford's known for lots of things. But one of the things you get out of Stanford, about going to Stanford is you get a network. I mean, you you get this huge network of of angel investors and entrepreneurs and people in, in Silicon Valley business. Like, I mean, it, it was kind of a cliche for a while for early stage investors. It's like, well, it's, you know, you fund the Stanford founders. I mean... Because this is a network. There's these whole programs and networks. Like, okay, you can go for networking. Are you going to college to please your dad? Are you going to college to party? Those are all different reasons. The purpose is different. And the value of it is different as a result, right? And then as compared to what? Is going to college good as compared to what? Heroin addiction? Starting your own long-term career early? Finding yourself? Trade school? What are we comparing it to? Right. So when we say, well, college is valuable, you have to answer what form of college, to whom is it valuable for, and for what purpose is it valuable, and opposed to what? It's not just universally blanketly valuable. That's just not true. Right. And I think the the free market noticed that, hey, you're going to apply for this loan to go to this college, and we don't actually think it's economically worth it. And if you're just going because you want to party or to please your dad or because you want the experience, fine, but we're not going to fit the bill. And the taxpayers shouldn't either, by the way. Or is the to whom, the to whom could be like, well, college is valuable not to students, but it's invaluable to employers. Employers need a crop of people that have gone to college. I don't know. Maybe does a law firm care? Do they care what degree you have and from where? They might. Does Starbucks care? I think you have to have an English major uh, degree to go to Starbucks. But, uh, you know, and for what? What do they care about? Does it directly relate to a job? Are they trying to check a box? Yes, this person went to college. Are they using it as a proxy for IQ? For a long time, there was a famous court case, Grig, uh, Griggs, I think, Griggs versus Duke Power in, in the 70s, uh, in which uh, the the Supreme Court ruled that you couldn't actually use high school diploma or IQ tests. Uh, and they actually said, unless it was directly related to the job, but it scared a lot of people off um, because the principal, they, they were looking at this and saying, it was actually an early example of outcomes-based stuff. They're like, well, you're asking for high school diplomas because diplomas because fewer people of color have high school diplomas and you're just using it to discriminate. So they're looking at the outcome and saying, well, you can't ask for it because we don't think I guess the Supreme Court's an expert at what your job requirements are. Uh, we don't think you need it for this. So you can't use it, right? It scared people away from doing IQ tests, for example. So a lot of people were using, a lot of employers used college as a proxy for IQ because colleges would use SAT scores, which are a proxy for IQ for admissions. And like, you know, they just use it. I think you can actually use an IQ test if you want. Um, uh, and it's fascinating to me that anyone would argue that 
an IQ test is not uh, related to your job because it's related to basically any job. In fact, I think it correlates better than anything to success in your job. So it's super important, but whatever. Um, so is is that why they're looking at college? Are they using it as a proxy for something? Or are they doing the thing in, in Griggs versus Duke Power where it's like, well, they're just, they're trying to discriminate against a class of people who they don't think can go to college. They're, you know, they're evil and they're trying to do that, right? And, and employers are using, you know, it's valuable to employers for what? As it compared to having no credentials? You know, if you, if you come to apply for me, do I like college as compared to no credentials? Or as compared to actual experience or accomplishments? Or as compared to a criminal record, right? I'd pro personally, I might take experience first, credentials second. Or sorry, no credentials second. Uh, and then college and criminal records are somewhere together. Depends on what you're in jail for, I guess. I'm, I'm getting criminal records probably below college. Uh, so once you understand that a value judgment, that value judgments generally require a value or they require a purpose, then you can see the nuance that's inherent in statements like college is valuable, right? Well, is it? Not universally. Or even the nuance in statements like uh, everyone should have the opportunity to go to college if they want, right? Especially because what is meant by everyone should have the opportunity is the government should make it affordable to anyone who wants. Make being a uh, stand-in for the use of force. Uh, sh should they? Sh should the government force it to be affordable? Should the government make sure that you can do this thing that the free market actually doesn't value enough for you to pay to do it in the first place? I personally, and this is just my personal thing, I find education, the kind of education you get by going to classes and doing that kind of stuff, not the homework so much, but I find it to be personally fulfilling in its own right. For the most part, I like that kind of learning that allegedly happens in college. I don't know how much it happens anymore, but not everyone does like that kind of learning. And everyone's, you know, so if I was going to attend for that reason, because I like it, because I find it fulfilling, well, that would be a luxury, especially in 2022. It would be an expensive luxury. Uh, so I wouldn't do that, probably. Um, I would probably just find there's a few things I've done free online. I've found it, there's some Stanford classes. There's some MIT classes. You just go take them online for free. I don't get the credits. I don't care. I want to learn. So I can do that. But certainly there are people for whom college remains a good choice. That's true. Now, that number of people, I think, is shrinking as schools get worse and more expensive. And as access to learning outside college becomes better and cheaper. So I think that's a shrinking set. Um, but don't fall for the that status quo bias that we talked about last week, right? The way education works now is necessarily the best way. No, it's not. It's not. The education system is broken. If there if you can't get on the free market a loan for your degree, it's broken. You shouldn't buy the degree unless you're just doing it as a you know nice to have, in which case. I don't want to pay for it, right? Um, you know, in 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 economics, in economics, if if a, if a business is failing, sometimes you know, sometimes the best thing to do is not to inject more money to kind of keep it afloat. Sometimes the best thing to do is to just let it fail, right? Sometimes when the business when a business is failing, it usually means the unit economics aren't working. It's not actually fundamentally it, it's not profitable. Right, uh, it's not that not sustainable economically. Now, sometimes, especially early stage stuff, 
you 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 have this plan and you're like, well, I think I can get the unit economics to work out. I just need more time and spend more money and blah, blah, blah. I got to just invent the time machine and everything will be fine or whatever it is. So in that case, you know, you inject capital, but you recognize that it's a risk, right? Because uh, you might lose all that capital. But um, the risk that you're taking there is that you might be misallocating capital. You might lose it. You might be wasting money. So often, if you just let the business die, it's better. If the business dies, the misallocation of capital stops. People stop working on it. Uh, consumer, like Customers stop giving that business money. It goes somewhere else where it's more productive. Investors stop giving it money. Banks stop loaning it, you know, lines of credit or whatever. The, the capital flows to something more productive, something people actually want, right? And then, and actually when businesses fail, sometimes you see people swoop in, they pick up the pieces of the dead business. Sometimes they can get it to work in the, the, the resurrected business can work better because you don't have the overhead of the previous failure. Um, or sometimes they just sell the pieces uh, and those pieces will get used productively. But large parts of the higher education system in the United States are basically they're a failing business. Not all of them, obviously, but large parts of the U.S. higher education system is just a failing business. And the smart, compassionate thing to do here is let them fail. Let higher ed education be exposed to the free market. Let it reconfigure or die. Let capital move elsewhere. And when that happens, new there'll be room for new innovative solutions. They'll have a chance to grow better solutions solutions that people want. In other words, solutions that even if they're expensive, someone will give you a loan to do because it's worth it. Solutions that the government doesn't have to subsidize. So, you know, that's, I hope this was helpful in kind of thinking about how to more clearly look at a problem by, by applying kind of these three, these three ideas, right? This idea that number one, uh, you you get context, right? You you make sure you've got you you flesh out that context completely, right? Um, and that includes principles. That includes what principles are connected to this. Do you see trying to identify, uh, you know, failures or or conflicts with the with the principle, right? And question that status quo. And, you know, ask the big questions, not why is it failing, but why is it, period, full stop. Why is it, right? The second one was recognize value judgments. We talked about that. Recognize that there aren't intrinsic value in things. So be able to answer value to whom, value for what, as opposed to what. And the third one is don't fall for the, you know, don't be a stupid Marxist, right? Don't think that, well, you can tweak a little thing and then, like, don't be perplexed when you tweak a thing and then people change their behavior massively as a result. Yeah. Yeah, because they're not idiots. They're going to change their behavior. You can't, <laughs> they're not Legos. You can't just move them around and pose them and be like, okay, now that's a good look. That doesn't work. All right. I'm going to look through some, uh, I think we have another super chat. So uh, thank you, Justifiably Stupid. Let me pull it up on screen. Justifiably Stupid says, oh, look, look at that. He's got a bored ape. So that means he's totally wealthy. You know, if you've got a bored ape, justifiably stupid, I think $10, I was going to say thank you, but maybe you should add a few more zeros if you've got a bored ape. Anyway, um, I'm teasing you. What would you say to veterans who choose not to transition? 
Does the U.S. government have a right to tell veterans not to continue using their skills as mercenaries, their current profession? <laughs> At first, I read that like, you mean like Chelsea Manning? Oh, uh, no, not that kind of transition. Um, does the government have a right to tell them not to continue using their skills? Well, no. Obviously, the government doesn't have that right. I don't think. Um, that said, I don't think the government has a right to tell them basically anything, right? Now, the question immediately arises morally, well, what are, what kind of mercenaries are they? Like, being a hitman is immoral, right? Um, if, if you're a mercenary and there's a town in somewhere in Africa, there's a village that wants to hire you to fight off the warlord, sure, right? And I don't know... I actually don't know. Is that not permitted? Does the U.S. government not allow you to go be a mercenary? I thought that a lot of um, I thought a lot of contractors were actually former uh, former military. So I didn't know that there was. I've not been in the military. I mean, I've I spent some time working with a lot of military uh, people for various reasons, but I've never been in the military myself, and I didn't know. And I, I'm pretty sure I've seen former military kind of being we'll call them mercenaries so i didn't know that was a rule um and if it is uh please someone enlighten me i, I was not aware uh all right let me look through chat see if there's anything else um oh just fively stupid follows up and says transition away from killing people for money i mean do they have the right to tell them not to transition away to kill them from no i mean like i said but uh Killing people isn't... Well, all right, this is going to be clipped and taken out of context. Remember context. Killing people isn't bad, necessarily. The initiation for, like, murdering people is definitely bad. Killing people, it could be done in self-defense. It can be a it can be a wonderfully moral thing to do. Uh, I, I know that sounds weird, and it probably takes a psychological toll. Thankfully, I've never had to do anything like that. But uh, <laughs> defending uh, the good by against an aggressive evil that's not immoral at all um i remember i'll just tell a quick story because we have some time tonight usually uh usually we're pushing two hours and i'm trying to end it but i've got a moment so i'm going to be a grandpa and tell a story um i remember about 20 years ago i was uh i was at a place called gunsight which is a training facility for firearms in arizona and um, at the time, uh, Colonel Cooper, Jeff Cooper, was running Gunsight, and uh, and I, I took a lot of classes with him, and and I was pretty involved in that community for a while. And I remember uh, he was a controversial figure for a lot of reasons. Uh, well, those are stories for another day. But one of the controversial things that he said, which really hit me, I mean, I was in my twenties, right? It really it hit me to hear someone say this. Um, he said, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of people telling you that if you're off in war doing X, Y, and Z and you kill people or whatever, that you've there's all this trauma that you have to deal with. And certainly that's true. There's a lot of trauma, but no one talks about the fact that it feels really good to kill bad guys and you will feel good about it. Like you will, you can feel really now. Maybe he's screwed up. I don't know. I've never killed the bad guy, but like he said, look, when you do something, when you when you defend justice in some way and you're you're killing the bad guy and you're stopping him from hurting good people 
that actually you get a feeling of elation that feels good and no one talks about dealing with that because a lot of people feel guilty a lot of soldiers will come back feeling guilty about feeling good uh for doing something like that now you know here it is 20 years later my politics have changed a little bit i would question that actually it was good in many of uh many cases uh soldiers are often sent around the world to kill people that we shouldn't be fighting in the first place but certainly there are examples where you can think like okay well it's it's in self defense or you actually are you actually are stopping the aggression of force and your your initiation of use of force and you're you're protecting innocent people i don't know i don't know if it feels good or not but uh i thought that was an interesting story and i was kind of shocked i remember being kind of shocked by hearing it at the time uh all right <laughs> someone says uh <laughs> tom hancock outlaw says not all lives matter. Well, I mean, matter to whom? Matter matters a great. This is a great example. This is a great example of a value judgment. Matter to whom and for what? Right? You got to ask that. I mean, they matter to whom and for what? Do they deserve to be? Uh, do all lives deserve to have their individual rights recognized? Yes, until they violate other people's. Until they demonstrate that they're incapable of doing that or unwilling to do that. And then at which point you need to shoot back. So, uh, all right. I think that's it. Uh, thank you guys for watching uh, and 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 interacting in chat. Thanks for the, the, the interaction and the comments. Um, as a reminder, I am looking for troublesome arguments. I mean, I think mostly, I think these are coming in through Discord. So if you're on our Discord server, just pop them in there, but you can send them anywhere. Uh, I am looking for troublesome arguments, arguments that you're having trouble refuting or arguments that you would like to make, but you're have you're having trouble articulating. Um, because I think that would help, you know, I'll take a crack at it. Maybe I'll fail. Maybe you guys, you know, you guys will jump in and say you missed this or whatever, but it'll help us kind of strengthen argumentation generally and and specific arguments that matter uh to you as a community so um let me know uh i'm sorry i'm reading one more chat justifiably stupid says i wasn't trying to derail the conversation i was trying to tie this into educational benefits for veterans no i didn't think you were trying to derail it um but your question doesn't tie it into educational benefits. I mean, uh, like, should they trend? Like, does the government have a right to tell them to not transition to, to other things? No, but they don't have an obligation to help them transition to something. Uh, certainly, unless that's part of a contract that they, you know, agreed to at the beginning. I don't like this idea. So I'll just say in blanket general terms, um, I think your military is too bloated and big and in too, involved in too many things. If you don't have, if you have to start throwing in incentives other than like kind of regular, like we'll pay you to live and, you know, pay you nicely, whatever, we'll pay you to live and nicely, whatever. And like you get a pension, like other than normal things, I think if you're starting to throw in goodies to attract people, uh, that means that your populace doesn't really think the country's like they don't think the military is necessary um they're doing it for like the wrong reasons so for example uh 
if the U.S. were invaded, like actually invade, like someone actually, Canada, Canada starts to invade us, you know, because Justin Trudeau, who knows what he's going to do. If Canada starts to invade us, uh, we won't need a draft. Like even old people like me will take up arms and be like, nah, stay out. I don't want Trudeau here. Right. Um, we'll, we'll join up because it's, it's a, it's a cause that's worth it. We want to protect, uh, our country and it's necessary and it's worth it. Um, and, but, but when, when people cease to perceive, whether it's true or not, when, when people cease to perceive, uh, that that's necessary. And I don't, and, and like now is an example where I don't think it's necessary to have a lot more people. I think the U S should withdraw militarily from a lot of places they are around the world. I think it could be much smaller. I think it could be targeted and stronger at defense. Um, but it could be much smaller than it is. We didn't need to go meddling everywhere. So I don't think there's a real need for that. I don't feel like if you don't, if we don't send, I don't feel like if we don't send someone to the next middle Eastern country next year, to go shoot some other people or drone strike some other people that I'm suddenly going to be unsafe. Right. I think most of what we've been doing, particularly, you know, three letter agencies have been doing around the world. have been making us less safe. So, uh, if that's your situation, uh, and you're starting to have to entice people to join your military, I think you have some deeper problems as a country. that's, that's all I'll say about that. Um, Trudeau will try to euthanize this. Right. That's my concern. Greg DeBertone. He'll come down and be like, that guy's, you know, I don't like what he's saying. I mean, he's too old. We should euthanize him. Uh, all right. So bring bring some more uh, arguments into Discord into here. Uh, please continue to do that. Thank you for those of you who've been watching. Uh, and for those of you who support us financially, um, you can join them. You can go to unsafespace.com. Unsafe get your name in the credits. You're not just supporting this show. You're supporting other shows as well. As I mentioned earlier today, Keith did a show. Uh, Keith has a show every uh, every Wednesday called Rebel Civics in the Wednesday afternoon. And today he talked about student loans, but from a constitutionality perspective. Uh, roughly every other Tuesday, Alex Maselli does uh, 451 Degrees, which is a show about censorship, big tech and censorship specifically. On Mondays, we have a show called Narrative Dissonance uh, that I host along with Juliet uh, Dillon. And we talk to journalists about the news and how we're being misled. Um, Two days ago, we had Megan Fox on, and she talked about the story from PJ Media, not the Totham Megan Fox. And she's talked about the story of Cynthia Absug, who was uh, recently convicted for um, medical abuse and conspiracy to kidnap her own child in, in a pretty shocking uh, decision. So we talked to her about that. Um, and then Thursday evenings, there's something for the nerds. Last time I said it was for the kids, and everyone was like, what are you talking about? We're not kids. We're as old as you are. Okay, so it's for the nerds. Uh, Token Minority Report, Minority Report happens every Thursday evening with Beverly and Alex, and it's a more fun, super long, uh, pop culture, free-for-all stream. So check that out. Also, we have Book Club coming up on September 25th. We're going to read The Satanic Verses. We're going to discuss The Satanic Verses by Salman Rushdie. Um, that's hosted by Alex Maselli and myself. Um, for those of you who are triggered by the name, it's a fiction book. Uh, it's not a manual to worship the devil. Um, and it is, uh, it's particularly the fiction book that, uh, that was the cause 
of a fatwa being issued against Salman Rushdie in the 80s and a $6 million price put on his head, and likely the reason he was stabbed recently. Um, the next book after that is Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. Juliet is hosting that one, and that's on October 30th. So if you want to do any of those book clubs, start reading now, and we'll see you in book club. That's it. Thanks, everyone. Have a great evening, and um, yeah, I will see you. see you next time. Take care. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. It would be better for your health if you forgot what you just heard. That should be easy for someone of your intelligence. The following co-conspirators are hereby ordered to watch CNN. Experts agree that 87,000 new tax collectors will make inflation feel like less of a problem. I think we can agree that the FBI's track record speaks for itself. If you think about it, only government-sanctioned experts should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice courtesy. Never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.